Number 11. Three Cosmic Messages, Second Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Lesson 11, The Seal of God and the Mark of the Beast, Part 1, in the quarter on the Three Cosmic Messages. Dr. Daniel Duda is going to be our moderator. Livius is going to offer our opening prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the truth that you revealed in Jesus. Be with us as we open your word, as we discuss this week's lesson. Give us your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and help us to bring glory and honor to your name in our discussion. Be with Daniel as he presents to us the lesson and to guide and direct our thoughts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Livius. And hello, everybody. If you have 13 weeks to talk about the three angels' messages, you would normally use four weeks for each. Last time we concluded with the second angel's message, so obviously there are three more lessons to finish the quarter, and two of them are devoted to the third angel's message. So that's the next one. Interestingly enough, both lessons deal with components of the third angel's message rather than the message as such. So somewhere we need to have a look at the whole message and the purpose of it. Otherwise, you are easily going to miss what's going on. If you look at the context, starting from verse 6, it's clear that the three messages follow in sequence. They are all eternal gospel, good news. And in the third angel's message, you find the strongest language ever. You need to understand that it's a response, it's a reaction. So let's go to... Revelation 14, starting from verse 9. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image, and receive a mark on their foreheads or their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest for them day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Mm-hmm. So when have you heard this? If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on its forehead or on its hand, have you heard those words before? Where did you hear them? So it's from Revelation 13, the previous chapter. And so there you have the... False Trinity, you have the dragon, who is the counterpart of the father. So the devil works by providing a counterfeit, an imitation. So he gives the authority and the throne. You have the sea beast, who functions for three and a half years, and has a wound to death, then comes back to life. So obviously it's an imitation and counterpart of Christ. And then you have the land beast, that speaks about the Sea beast, so a clear counterpart of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 12, 17, we learn that the dragon, when he cannot attack the child, Jesus, he goes after the remnant. And so chapter 13 tells you what that anger looks like. And you have the pressure, economic, you have the threats, and then the result is that the whole earth went after the beast, verse 8. And chapter 14.1 tells you actually not the whole earth, because there were some who followed the lamb, did not follow the beast. And how it happened that some people followed the lamb? Verses 6.12 will give you the answer, because they had this message 
God's last warning message. So you are going to misunderstand what's going on in the third angel's message unless you see that it's a response to the threats of the beast and the dragon. So it's not God's preferred language. To use the words of Ellen White, God does not submit himself to a test in the scriptures. He uses the language that somebody else used. The beast works through threats to induce fear. And so you have in chapter 13, who is like the beast? Clear parody on Mikael from chapter 12, who is like God. So there are those who admire the strong use of authority and power. And then there are those who say who can fight against him or her. In other words, there is no point of resisting, of fighting. It's better to surrender. And you have clearly two groups of people, those who agree, who is like the beast, who admire the beast. And so those who receive the mark on their forehead, and those who just comply, who can fight against the beast, and they receive the mark on their hand. Throughout the salvation history, some people followed God because of fear. Remember the ten plagues of Egypt? Pharaoh says, who is God? I don't know him. Why should I let the nation go? So God says, let me introduce myself. And the next thing is ten plagues of Egypt, which show that the God of Israel is stronger than the gods of Egypt. And the result of that is that not only Israel is liberated, but a mixed multitude goes and says, we want to be on the winning side, because your God is stronger, let's join you. So in the last part of history, maybe some people are going to join God's side because of fear. And if the beast uses the language of intimidation and fear, God is going to respond to that. How is God going to respond? You are going to misunderstand the text of the third angel's message unless you see that it's a response to the reaction. It's a reaction to what was going on before in chapter 13. And what is that going to bring? Verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Okay. If you look under number one, the purpose of the lesson is described as follows. In this lesson, we'll explore further the difference between how God operates and how the enemy of soul operates. The enemy of souls usurps God's authority, commands loyalty, introduces a counterfeit system of worship, and he does it by using force, coercion, and at times bribes and rewards. All that in order to compel worship. In contrast, love is the great motivating force for the kingdom of God. God's people find the greatest joy and highest delight in worshiping him. They are committed to him because they know how committed he is to them. And so that brings us to Sunday's lesson. Why are these people on God's side? Under these circumstances, this requires steadfast endurance and commitment to God based on the commandments of God as interpreted in the faithfulness of Jesus. So, what's your impression from the third angel's message? What comes to your mind when you read this terrifying language? Dan? One of the things that makes me rather humble when I read these texts is I wonder how I'm going to behave if I was in that situation. Would I cave in to the external pressures or would I be willing to stand up with the small minority that is really going to be denigrated to a great degree? It's easy for us to say right now that we're going to stand up for God. And I don't think it's going to be as simple as just standing up for God. I think it's going to probably be some more obscure situation in which we are 
called to stand up for what is right in some way, as Christ sometimes stood up for the prostitute or the poor, or stood up for and helped the woman whose child had epilepsy that was a foreigner. The great issue is going to be something that none of us are thinking about, I don't think. And therefore, it's going to catch many of us unaware. And then the pressures to conform, and I think we know what the pressures to conform are with COVID, how we've been all told to conform in a certain way. I can see how pressure can affect us in ways that we're uncertain about. And so I worry about myself in saying, how will I stand when those kind of pressures come? And is the purpose of the message so that we worry about ourselves? Yeah, it's obviously a threatening situation. And remember, Peter, if everybody else, don't worry about me, I will be on your side. And the gospel writers then record the three times how he failed. So to have the sense of assurance can't happen to me, Paul says, those who are standing, let's make sure that you don't fall. If you think you are standing, you might not be in the next moment. Let's go to Gary. I think it's a legitimate concern. Look at Peter. Peter said, though I'll forsake you, I will not. And look what he did. So uh, even a disciple of Christ thought that he wouldn't, but he did. So I think you can't be overconfident, and if you're overconfident, then that may be the first step for going down. But I think it's not just the acceptance of God and who he was, but it's the rejection of Satan and his ideals. Mrs. White says that Adam and Eve weren't condemned so much for accepting Satan's story presentation, but not accepting his presentation. And so I think it's too, if you hesitate on the one, you may fail on the other. And so I think that Adam and Eve didn't reject that, and so they ended up rejecting God's side. You almost have to have that attitude to stand up against that kind of pressure. Is that you have to strongly feel that this is what it is, that it's satanic and evil, and therefore I cannot accept it. Mm-hmm. Well said. And Iris? We definitely struggle and need to unpack this message a little bit. I believe the context is the second message where Babylon has fallen. So there is an unmasking of a power of deception that has gone before. Nevertheless, the second part of the third angel's message says, there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So even... In light of unmasking that power of deception, coercion, that evil power, there are people who prefer the lie over the truth. And part, at least, of the third angel's message is, look, these are the consequences. People who buy into the lie, who cannot be convinced by evidence, will not find rest is sort of a very troubled mental, emotional state to which they are doomed, but not necessarily doomed by God inflicting on them, but by their own choice. And that's important that God shows that this action of submitting to the economic boycott or pressure or threats to life is not going to bring the desired outcome. It's not going to bring the rest. And notice how that is connected with the first angel's message saying, fear God and give him glory, worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of the water. 
And John Pauline, when you studied the first angel's message, showed you how this is the most explicit quotation of the fourth commandment in the New Testament, which is connected with the rest. So if you fear the beast, you are not going to find the rest. If you fear, quote-unquote, God and give him glory, you are going to find the rest because he's the source of the true rest. Bob? There's some reason to sympathize with what Dan said a little bit ago because in the Bible, if, if someone is writing a brief the opposite way, they could say, render to Caesar. Christ said that. And then when the Jewish people from Judah were sent to Babylon, they were told to be good citizens and follow the orders of the government, be good citizens. So it might be a gray zone to some people, in fact, a lot of people, when are you actually obeying God and when are you not? Because there's verses that go both ways. So I think it's going to be very confusing for a lot of people, certainly at first, to know what is obeying God and what is disobeying God. Yes, but as you studied with John Pauline, the issue is very clear in Revelation 13 and 14. The issue is worship. Seven times worship is mentioned. And so it's not a question of civic obedience or disobedience. It's a question of ultimate worship. And that's why the fact that the devil works through providing an alternative, an imitation, is very important because it leads to false worship. So they worship the dragon, they worship the authority, they worship the beast. Ashley? So I think your original question was reactions to Third Angel's message, right? So obviously when you when you read it out of context, maybe not taking into account symbolic language. It sounds very violent. It sounds very scary. It, <laughs> it doesn't sound very loving, godlike. But the subtlety that everyone's kind of touching on is really important. I don't think, especially if you've been living this way your whole life, it may not be obvious to you that you're not resting, that you maybe never rest or you never knew what it's like to rest. Like I think of even friends I was talking to today and they're so frustrated with people they care about because they're clearly making these choices that are basically destroying their lives, but they don't have the motivation or care to exit those situations for whatever reason. So yeah, I think something that's become clear to me over time as I've gotten older too is like these mistakes and these choices we make, sometimes they're not always completely conscious or it's not some huge big one decision. It's like subtle compromises you make over time and then you find yourself in a situation maybe you didn't realize. So, But I think it's helpful, like you said, taking into account that this is like a reaction and Again, it's symbolic language too. So how did people end up in the situation of worshipping the beast? What was the process that led them to that? And because they are there, God responds by using the same language and offers another alternative. You don't have to be the victim. Babylon is fallen. You don't have to be the victim of that way of thinking. Let's go to Livius. So the Bible is full of stories, right? There's a lot of stories that teach us stuff. And I think I've extracted a story here in Revelation, but I don't want to go into that because we might be here a very long time. (laughs) But what we read here in verse 10, where it says, we'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. Revelation is full of imagery and symbolic language. And the Greek for fire and sulfur is pyrikaitheon. That's like God's fire, fire of God. Why, that's a lot of different than fire and sulfur as it's translated here. So I guess one question would be, what is God's fire? What examples do we have in the Bible of God's fire? 
And Dan was mentioning that, what is it going to be like when you have to be forced into a decision? And I actually think that what's happening here is that God is looking for people to decide. Our memory verse in Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, it says that, I'll just quote the, the specific section, it says that, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. You see, they have the power to harm the earth and the sea, but not the trees, right? So I'm thinking that what's happening here is the trees are sealed already, so there's no harm that's going to come to them. It's the earth and the sea. It's the other people. The trees, the 144,000, are the first fruits, and God needs them to help these people to decide between Satan's principles and God's principles. And so, yeah, we're going to have to make a decision, I think. So God acts as a restrainer, so he limits the distracting power. Initially, yes, because in Revelation chapter 7, he's holding back. He's holding back the four winds at the four corners of the earth until a special group is sealed. Yes, and of course the fire and the sulfur is a reference to the Old Testament and the destruction of Edom. John? Just bouncing back on Dan's comments and Bob's comments and the thought putting ourselves in the scene where we're in, in Revelation, how would we respond? How would we know when we're worshiping the beast and when we're not? How will we know? There is a parallel within Seventh-day Adventist history, and that was in the 1880s, there was a movement to rescue the spiritual quality of the country by insisting on Sunday observance, that everyone is required to observe Sunday. It happened in a few local places. It didn't happen nationally, as some had anticipated. But the question was raised, what do we do? And there were many who said, well, if we're commanded to worship on Sunday, then we must go out and publicly work and defy this. But Ellen White, who is very respected in that context, said no. She said there's no harm in doing gospel work on Sunday. There's no harm in having a worship service on Sunday. This is not a threat to us. But later on, there came some laws that required people to work on Saturday, the Sabbath. That was considered a different story, you see. So I think Bob was saying, you know, these things can kind of be middle ground. And I think that the whole issue is when laws come about that impact your faith in God, your loyalty to God, when is a time when you say, well, this is not a big deal, we can go on. But at some point, there's a thing that actually would cut against the very heart of your walk with God, and at that point, a firm decision is necessary. Anyway, a little illustration of how such things happen that, as are being described in this text. Yep, thank you. Dan? I'd just like to make a point about how subtle some of these things are. I've been, for a variety of reasons, reading out of my usual area of comfort, which is medicine, and reading more educational and psychology things, and looking at the interrelationship of education and religion and some other kind of things. And what struck me, and the more widely I read, the more I see this, is the fact that the world has given up on God as the explanation for things. So the whole hierarchy of learning and explaining things now is evolutionary. So if you look even at our schools, and I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect the books that we're using in our universities, etc., are all based on evolutionary theory. In every field, God is left out 
as an explanation for how things happen. And I think that transition, most of us are hardly aware of what's happened around us. And if Satan can work so subtly in that way, I wonder, again, I'm going back to the thing to say, unless we're really close to God, we will not know when the issues come up that are going to differentiate us from the masses. And so I just use that as an illustration of how many of us have abandoned God for evolutionary ideas without even knowing it, I don't think. Okay, Henry? Thinking about the way that one feels reading this section, I was trying to put myself on the shoes or sandals of the people that was listening to this the first time. When John wrote it, they sat, it was read out loud. So it was Christian believers. This was not people with atheist or pagan backgrounds. This was read at church. So if it was read at church, everybody there thought they were worshiping God. And that's, I think, one of the difficulties of this. How can we feel threatened if we believe that we are worshiping God? But what God is saying in this section of the message is, hey, you better watch out. You may not be worshiping me because whoever is worshiping the beast will harvest this. But this is at the end. So it's a call for me to review why I am believing right now, to review my worship, to double check if I am really intentionally from the heart worshiping God. Because it's not saying this is the way to know. It's saying these are the consequences of not worshiping God. So being read to Christian believers, if I was there, I may have gone home and thinking, am I really worshiping God? And then it was not a threat. I will take it as a loving father telling me, hey, be careful where you're going. Because I don't want you to go through the consequences. And so this is the way that I see it. More than judging somebody else is a message to me. Make sure that I'm really, really worshiping God so I can prevent getting the consequences of that. It's obvious that the message is there to disturb people, to make you think, as you and Dan indicated. Notice that after focusing on the fate of those who reject worshiping God, John turns the attention in verse 12 on those who worship God. And he says that they have steadfast endurance, they are saints, they worship God because they are commandment keepers. But then he adds, and the faith of Jesus. And of course, we can discuss the genitive and what it means. But if you look at the Revelation in chapter 1, verse 2, John speaks about the word of God as explained by the testimony of Jesus. In 1.9, he speaks about the word of God as explained by testimony of Jesus. And then in chapter 6.9, the word of God as explained by the testimony they had in their possession. And then in chapter 12, verse 17, once again, it was the dragon was angry with those who keep the commandments of God as explained by the testimony of Jesus. Then you have it here, and you will have it again in chapter 20. Now, when early pioneers read this, they said, yeah, commandments of God, who else is keeping those? All ten, including the fourth, only us. And the faith of Jesus means the way how Jesus kept the commandments. 
So you end up with commandments and commandments. And the result is that at the time of Minneapolis, Ellen White says we have been preaching the law so long and hard that we became as dry as the hills of Gilboa. How do you know on whose side you are? You have to look at the life of Jesus. That explains how God works and the contrast with the beast and the dragon and how they work. Iris? I want to build on what Henry said. I think one of the biggest challenges is often situations where we can clearly prove that we are right. Because those are situations where in being so right, we can be terribly wrong in the way we represent truth. So on the one hand, there is this struggle between truth and deception. Then we are reminded truth, if truth is a person, if truth is Jesus, then we have to embrace his methods of living truth. We cannot represent truth in a forceful, coercive, in a way that mirrors the character of the enemy. But there has to continuously be alignment as we speak truth with the character of God. And I think these people that have this steadfast endurance have clarity about who God is at the core, what his character is like. And they are so grounded in that understanding of who God is and what he is like that they are able to discern. They are not misled and they reflect the character of the one whom they worship and follow. And where do you see that? In the commandments of Jesus and in God's commitment stability to humankind as revealed in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, Livius. I just wanted to maybe add a Bible text to what Iris was describing and connect it with Revelation chapter 7, with the memory verse, where the servants of our God are sealed on their foreheads. And this connects to the trees, the symbol of the trees in this passage. And I want to take you to Psalm 92, uh, Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. Listen to this description of the trees, the people that are supposedly sealed. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. These are the sealed. This is what is being declared here at the end of time, because I think people will need to choose. We have hot, cold, and lukewarm in the end. It's like that today, and this is the contrast. This is what people have to decide on. If the Lord is God, Follow him. If Baal is God, follow him, right? And that's how you get from three groups to two. So the circumstances reveal on which side you stand. Let's go to Matthew 27, verses 45 to 50. Monday's lesson speaks about the cosmic struggle. Matthew 27, 45 to 50. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, 
This man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. So how do we get what God's commitment to humankind looks like from the death of Jesus? Interestingly, the bystanders see he's looking for a powerful ally. Let's see if Elijah comes to his rescue. And the result is, no, he didn't. In Luke's version, Peter says, we have two swords. Shall we strike? Jesus says, you don't understand what's going on. If this was about fight, I could have asked God to provide angels to rescue me. But the result is, I am just like any human dictator with blood on my hands. And the text says, and Jesus breathed out, gave up his spirit and died. And of course, in John's version, before that, he says, Tetelestai, it is finished, it is completed. Can you see the contrast with Revelation 13? The use of power to achieve the goal? Iris reminded us of the second angel's message, the Babylon is fallen. Every time we use power to achieve our goals, good goals, we follow the footsteps of Babylon. Because God is going to achieve his purpose by refusing to use the power to rescue himself. Can you see the contrast? How God is going to use the language? Okay, if this is the language that brings you to response, think twice. Are you going to get what you expect from that? You are not going to get the rest. The answer is, you have to understand who God is and how he works. And then you will be faithfully on his side. All right, let's go back to Livius. That's why it's taken a long time, right? Because it takes a long time for us to come to a decision. And so God is patient, wishing that no one would perish. But that's how God operates. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't force anything upon you. He's waiting for a bunch of people to know him as he truly is. And that's what Revelation 14 says. And there are those who follow the Lamb, wherever he goes, and there are 12 times 12 times 1,000. Remember, numbers in Revelation mean quality, not quantity. God had like those in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and they are perfectly organized. David was in charge of 1,000 in Saul's army. So God will have this quality of people who are sealed, who are on his side, who know what they believe and why. And not only they do the right thing, there is the commandments of God, but they have the right motivation. Why do you do what you do? And the clearest revelation of who God is, is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because the primary purpose of that is the revelation of God's character. Answering the questions which were not answered. And that's the contrast in Revelation 13. How one side operates and how the other side operates. Dan? I'm glad you brought those verses because the thing that the cross proves to me, getting back to the message of what God is trying to prove, or what he's saying, at the cross, I think that God answered a couple of questions. One, Satan accused him of being a tyrant. And what did he show? He showed that he was humble and that his kingdom was one for people who wanted to be humble. And for us to make the transition to say, it's not about power, it's about humility. And then the second thing I think that I get from the cross, and of course, I don't necessarily like the idea of humility and how important it is to God. But the second thing that I get out of that is how important relationships are. And what happens when relationships 
are broken, especially with God, in which Christ says, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? And I think that was a demonstration to me also, is what happens when you elect not to have God with you? You die, you know? And so I think Christ felt that probably more than anything, because he had always been with the Father. And all of a sudden, that relationship was broken at the cross to demonstrate to us what it's like not to have that relationship. And right now, we enjoy it because God keeps pursuing us. But one day when he stops, we will, for the first time, probably realize what it's like not to have someone pursuing us. I like those verses because it focuses, getting back to the third angel's message, what the real issues are and whether we understand those issues clear enough that when we're challenged, whether we can stand up, stand up and defend God's character and also practice those traits that he would like us to have. Notice that people who crucify Jesus show we are in power, we are in charge. And interestingly, people standing around the cross even misunderstand his cry, and they see that he's looking for a powerful ally, that he's asking for Elijah to come and rescue him, whether something from the transfiguration got into public knowledge, or why would they interpret the Aramaic in the way they did, it's interesting, but you see what you want to see. And the interesting thing is that Jesus refuses to play the power game, and that's where his victory, that's how he achieves what he wanted. Because by allowing the death to crush him, going down, down, down from the cosmic ladder to the death of the dishonored slave, because you can't crucify a Roman citizen, they are due legal process, cannot be crucified. His fate is going to be reversed. God is going to show that he's on his side. Henry? I think that the picture, the contrast, is not complete by reading Matthew only. I think that we are missing a very important part that is recorded in Luke. Because in Matthew, we hear Jesus cry, Why you have forsaken me? That terror that Dan was describing the separation. But the message of the three angels is one of good news. And Jesus knew about the good news. And that's why I think we miss the complete picture, because in Luke 23, 46, in the midst of the cry of the anguish, he says, Father, in your hands, I feel completely comfortable of putting my life. So. This is exactly what the message of the three angels means again. It's a message of trust, of confidence, of knowing that God is on your side. Regardless of what it seems to be, some people look at these messages as a terrifying message. But again, if we know that we can trust him, we can see the picture of Jesus. You are expecting me to look for Elijah, but I have a better person to go to. I have my father, and I will put my soul in his hands. And notice, he does not react on the basis of what he feels, but what he knows. So he feels that the father has forsaken him, but he knows that he is there. And there is always this discrepancy between what we feel and what we know. And he refuses to be the victim. Why is this happening to me? Feeling sorry for himself. After all those healings, after all those good things that I have done, why are you treating me this way? Why is this happening to me? Which is how often we 
respond when the situation doesn't seem fair to us. But he refuses to be the victim, and John is going to show clearly he's actually in charge. He's not the victim of the mistrial, injustice. He's the one who is in charge. Nobody's taking my life. I am giving it voluntarily. And he responds on the basis of what he knows. Father, I know you are there. Though I don't feel you, all my senses tell me the reality is different. And that's back to the essence of what Isaiah calls the Jacob's time of trouble. That you feel through your senses one reality. To use the words of Desire of Ages, he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. But he acts not on what he feels, but on the basis of what he knows. And living in the world in which you and I live, where what I feel is the ultimate reality. If it feels so good, how it can be bad? If it feels unfair, then it is unfair. And that brings you back to the first angel's message. Respect that your little head is not the measure of everything. That there is a reality that is bigger than what you and I perceive. Because if you are the victim of this worldview, you have no chance of surviving. Because ultimately you are worshipping your little head. You are worshipping somebody else than God, and you are going to turn into the beast. If you keep the commandments because of what you get out of it, sooner or later the circumstances are going to come that you say, actually, the payoff is not worth it. I am not getting what I invested into this, what I expected from this. And it's going to turn you into an enemy of God. Sooner or later, you throw it over the board. I'm not getting out of this what I expected, what I invested, what I should be getting. And so this is a very important aspect. All right, can we go on? Galatians 6, 7 to 9, Tuesday's lesson. Galatians 6, 7 to 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh... You will reap corruption from the flesh, but if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time, if we do not give up. In due time, you will reap the results. God does not always pay the dividend in August. In due time, you will see the results, but not necessarily from the perspective of 15th of June or 15th of December in due time. When is the time to evaluate what am I getting from this? Can you see the principle of reaping what we sow in Revelation 13 and 14? Remember what characterizes the first beast? Was alive, then was dead, then it came back to life. The deadly wound that was healed. What's that? That imitating the ministry of Jesus. How long does she perform? Three and a half years. How long is the ministry of Jesus? Three and a half years. So, there you have the false testimony of Jesus. And what is the result? Revelation 13, 15. And that phenomenon is used to achieve what? And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. See? And it was given. Do you hear there? Echo of Job, okay, you have him in your hands. But this time it's not the divine passive, this time it's a demonic passive. And it was given, and when you reap what you sow, 
those who do not comply are going to be killed. Can you see the contrast with the ministry and life and death of Jesus? And then Revelation 18.24, in the context of Babylon. And in you was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. And that's how you know it doesn't speak about the Roman Empire. It doesn't speak about the medieval church. It speaks about the bigger enemy. Because of this approach, all the saints, all the people who have been killed are found in you. This is the ultimate reason why worshipping the false picture, false god, false trinity, false alternative ultimately leads to abuse of power and killing. John Pauline? I appreciate you bringing in here Revelation 13:15 and the coercive nature of the activity there. One additional element I would call to our attention is that what is being worshipped there is the image of the beast. And it seems clear to me that this is one of those subtle references that Revelation makes to the Old Testament. And that is, in creation, human beings were created in the image of God. And the purpose of our life is to become more and more like God. But here you have the counter, the image of the beast. So the world is divided into people who are becoming more and more like the character of God and more and more like the character of the beast. And that those two characters become the dividing line at the end of time. How to prepare to be focused on God. And what does the text say? By beholding, you become changed. Yeah, yeah well said. Thank you. All right. Let's go on. Okay, Livius. I was just going to add that we don't have to wait till the end to reap the benefits. When we participate and when we act out the life of Jesus in our own lives, when we extend a kind smile or do something for someone when we are other-centered, benefits sometimes come immediately, whether towards you of how that makes you feel inside or how that other person responds. And so you don't have to wait till the very end. This can happen immediately when we exercise these principles and these methods, and they're very revelatory. God is witnessing to us and saying, hey, you know, my stuff is good. Yep. Thank you. Let's read Revelation 13, 3 to 5. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And verse 8, let's start with 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. Mm -hmm. And So once again, it repeats in verse 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. And you learned in verse 4 that actually by worshipping the beast, they worship the dragon. Back to the image and the commandment number 2, don't worship the image. Worship the creator, God, the source itself. 
And then let's go to 14.1. And the whole world went after the beast. And verse 41 provides a correction. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So actually not everyone, because some people followed the Lamb. There were some people of certain quality, remember numbers mean quality, who followed the Lamb. All right, what's the application? Do you and I live in a world where things are unquestionably accepted by the majority and people don't dare to be different and just follow the crowd? Revelation 13 says, watch out, you are on a dangerous path. Because if you just follow the majority, you might end up in the wrong destination. John Pauline? Well, you have the intriguing question in the handout, what cultural realities of today's world are universally worshipped without being questioned by the majority? And one that came to my mind was equality. Major value that is, I think, almost universally held. But what has happened with that value is that essentially means there's no distinction between truth and error. Good and evil, you treat everyone the same, therefore there's no distinction. It's all good, you see. Don't even think about pointing the finger and saying, this is the beast, you see. So that principle that is so biblical in many ways, nevertheless, aside from the character of God and the biblical principles, it can become distorted into something harmful and then becomes those who hold to, quote, inequality in terms of what's right and wrong, etc. Those now become the object of wrath. The inequality of that action escapes <laughs> the larger culture. So that's just one. I think there's many one could share, but that's just one that is kind of surprising because equality is a beautiful thing, a biblical thing. But in the way it's being used in today's world, it's setting up a very different spirit. So we have to admit that because how we abuse the power, even as Christians, and did not treat people in an equal way, the pendulum goes to the other side. Now we see the evil of that. But if the society doesn't have the balance, it can bring equally evil things by worshipping equality as the ultimate value. And then it's not politically correct to say that in a fallen world, there are differences, there are beasts, there are dragons, <laughs> and there is a lamb. Well said, thank you. Uh, Elisa? Well, I agree with John completely. Even in a university setting, in an academic setting, we are afraid to say things are not equal. And as a result, we approve and look the other way when things that aren't equal should be noticed. Or well, if everything is going to be equal, then we don't have any objections to all of those things. And yet, if we look at what God says, what Jesus says, then we have to say there are some things that are not equal. And I witness that it happens more frequently than I would like in the interest of equality. So without getting too specific, we academics are sometimes hesitant to say, this thing doesn't measure up. This thing doesn't measure up to truth. Evidence. Yes. But we're going to go along with it because we believe in equality. And I guess I see it happening more often than I would like, where we get sucked into going for the imitation or 
making excuses for the imitation when the real thing is right there, but we can't go there because of the interest in equality or academic freedom even. If you don't have academic freedom to investigate, if the results are not prescribed beforehand, you are not going to discover the truth. But if that becomes the ultimate value, it can go wrong as well. All right, Gary? Might be an oversimplification, but I think if you look around, there's the famous American statement, all men are created equal, which is a lie. All men are not created equal. Almost everything related to human beings follow a bell-shaped curve. Intellect, height, ability to run, ability to do math, ability to paint a picture, ability to sing. All men are not created equal. They follow a bell-shaped curve. Physical appearance, beauty versus not beauty and all that kind of stuff. That statement is only true if it's placed in the context of God. It is true with God. All men are created equal in relationship to God, in the context of God. And without God, I don't see how you can say that all men are created equal. There's just, I don't know any aspect of life or existence where everything is equal. It's just not. And so to try to force equality in all these areas, to me, distorts reality. Yep. Okay, let's go to John. Because that's exactly what the Founding Fathers meant. All are equal before God. We read the Constitution in a secular way now, and this equality has become almost nonsense, as you put it. So it's written in the certain historic context, and the context is the New World versus England. So, Gary? Well, sort of a superficial observation, but, you know, even life isn't equal. I don't have Secret Service following me around to protect my life, and other people do. Why? Because there are certain values, therefore their life is more valuable. So when we talk about these things, you have to put it in what context are we talking about? Usually, we're thinking about the first death. You start thinking about the second death, and then it's a different situation. All right. As we mentioned, the result of Revelation 13 is that the world goes like sheep. The majority goes in one direction. Yet there are those who dare to stand up and follow the lamb, not the beast. And it's up to us in our context to ask the question, to what extent am I following the majority? And do I have the courage to stand up for what is right because it's right? Henry? And I don't think the recipe to play safe is to wait and see, okay, what is the majority? I will be follow the minority. That will be a simplistic way to do it. I think that those that are followers for the sake of following, without using reason, without judging the evidence, without making a decision that is intentional, that's what makes the difference. And I don't think the minority finds out, okay, we are going to be looking for the little group. They find themselves into the small group. Through different avenues, this is not about having the truth about everything. They will be believing different things, but they would have one truth. That is what is setting them apart. And uh, just for context, be careful not to be looking for the what is the big group so I can take the other direction, but to evaluate the evidence and make a decision, even if you find yourself alone with nobody else around you. Okay, let me conclude. If you look under number eight, whether it's in heaven or the Garden of Eden, God was first misunderstood, misrepresented, and then what he says is violated. 
And that's why if God wants to put things right, he needs to address both aspects. Not only the violation, but also the misrepresentation. And that's why the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, deals not only with the violation of the law, it needs to deal also with misrepresentation of the law. And that's why the third angel's message shows if you follow God, if you follow the Lamb, you are going to violate the requirements of the beast, but the solution is not to bow down to the beast because it misrepresents the values on which God's government stands. And the question for us is, how do we in our context, in our culture, in our world, model in a positive way the values of God's character? So that that misrepresentation can be lifted or so that people who want to follow have an option. Because throughout the centuries, so many people had no real option because of the misrepresentation of God. Now, God's children with good intention presented God, created more injustice, unfairness and misrepresentation of his character than the light. And God, in the third angel's message, warns, ultimately, if you follow this, you end up outside of the new Jerusalem. It's going to take you to the wrong destination. Be careful who you trust, be careful who you worship, because it's shaping your eternal destiny. All right, let's pray. Lord, when we read scary words like those in the third angel's message, it's easy to misunderstand it or misinterpret it. Yet we are thankful that you are willing to do whatever it takes to warn us about the fatal consequences of misunderstanding your character, doing things because of fear, or following the majority just because it's more convenient or because it promises certain temporary gain. Help us in coming days and weeks to be more acquainted with who you are and to model to those around us in a positive way that worshipping you, following you, leads to true rest, happiness, equality and the future of all who wants to be on your side. And we want to tell you that that is our desire, not only for this life, but for all eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.